Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm Agas Ramirez. This is part two of Princesa Urduha of Tawalisi, where we seek to uncover the story of a legendary warrior princess. While she was recorded in the travel accounts of Ibn Batuta in the 14th century and as a popular heroine in the Philippines, we still don't actually know for sure where Tawalisi is. We are joined by filmmaker Tiffany Ang, who directed the short film Princess Urduha. Tiffany is a University of the Philippines Film Institute graduate, the creative director of Vish Media, and a freelance video and digital content producer who podcasts at Harvest Hour. Her short film was an official selection at both the 2013 International Student Film and Video Festival in Beijing and the 2014 Manhattan International Film Festival in New York. It won Best Screenplay at the 2015 Asian Youth Indie Film Festival in Malaysia and was the 2016 recipient of the Annie Nangdangal Award for Cinema by NCCA. Princess Urduha is about two interweaving stories set in completely different worlds, the real and the fantastical. The protagonists, Princess Urduha and a soldier's wife, both deal with grief in the passing of their respective companions. With awakening as its central theme, the film does not solely focus on their sorrow. Instead, it sheds light on the lead character's ability to rise up out of their situation and their decision to accept their new lives as the leader of their own dominion. The film is set on one quiet night when Rita, a soldier's wife, tells her two children the tale of Pangasinan's legendary warrior, Princess Urduha, as she goes in a search to find her missing brother, Haring Mahabala. An unexpected visitor interrupts the storytelling as he delivers a letter that will forever change Rita's life and the course of the Pangasinan tale. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, thank you so much for having me guest here in your podcast. And is this the 10th episode? Am I right? This is um the 11. technically the the 10th episode, but this will be like a three-part um I said two-part but three-part. Oh, like nice. Three-part episode uh, because I wanted to devote like one month to this interview so yeah so okay. so congratulations uh, since this is a 10th I mean <laughs> that's already a feat <laughs> so yeah and what a special episode because we're talking about Princess Urduha something close to my heart <laughs> yes so um what happened was I was looking through YouTube for anything anything that I could use mm-hmm. and then I saw your short film Nice. And then I thought I needed to get in touch with you. Mm-hmm. So I looked looked you up on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And then and then I looked you up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then I realized we were classmates. Classmates, yeah. So, <laughs> Small world. <laughs> what, like what what are the odds that yeah. I was classmates? I was with quite shocked years also. Ago. No, of all of all people. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> what what the, what are the odds of this? So serendipity. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So my first question for you is why Princess Urduha? 
Okay, so before shooting my short film, I knew beforehand that it should be an ode to my late grandmother. Because I was still going through grieving stage at that time. And in film school, it's a requirement to go through like a certain period of research before you get that go signal from your thesis advisor to actually shoot on location. And at the time, everything about my thesis, the concept, the logistical feasibility, even my literary pre- uh, references, my thesis advisor even, because he's from Pangasinan also. So they all point to one thing, which is the province of Pangasinan. And then eventually... Wait, wait, hang on. Your, your yeah. grandmother was from Pangasinan? Yes. Your thesis advisor was from Pangasinan? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what? everything just convened and met yeah. there. <laughs> so yeah, and so parang... Uh, originally, it was just Pangasinan as a location, but eventually, it led me to the discovery of Princess Orduha, or in Tagalog, Princesa Orduha. So, story-wise, originally, I was just pushing for a narrative that shows the character development of an ordinary woman <laughs> who grieves, <laughs> yet also at the same, uh, also, that same character has to step out of her comfort zone. Uh, because it was her only choice, her uh, her option given, and the only option given to her, uh, given the unfortunate circumstances. So, uh, and then as for the film treatment, I was really inspired by Alfonso Cuarón's take on A Little Princess. It's basically a film about Princess Sarah, <laughs> or um, in Filipino, ang Sarah ang bunting princesa. <laughs> But Koron's treatment centered on magic realism with reference to Indian culture, which technically Princess Orduha is somehow interested in India, <laughs> if you read the references to her. So that's it. <laughs> so having shot the film in Pangasinan and your grandmother and your thesis advisor hailing from there, um, how different was it when you, I'm sure you read uh, Ibn Batuta's journal, Mm-hmm. Yes. Before you uh, went into this project, and um, how different was uh, that account from the uh, what the Pangasinenses told you about her? Um, honestly, I haven't got the chance to really speak to local officials and how they really perceive Princess Urduha as a collective society, but. Here's my observation, well, at least from the ordinary people I've met and my relatives in Pangasinan who helped me shoot my film. The interesting, uh, the interesting thing is they highly believe that she existed and that she's a real person than a, myth- uh, a mythical being or deity. Um, but they just know her as fierce, strong woman of the mm. pre-colonial Philippines. But like warrior. Yeah, something like that. But their knowledge of her doesn't involve so much details because in our class, or at least in our historical classes, you know a lot of details about the Spanish occupation. So Rizal, Bonifacio, etc. But uh, I think there was also this one point during my research that I remember being so frustrated because I I'm I'm sort of asking myself now how come there how come there are more literary references to Limahong in the local library of Pangasinan as opposed to 
princess or duha. <laughs> Limahaw or something. Basta that, that guy, parang that guy version of princess or duha. So, oh, I see. But the accounts, uh, but upon reading the accounts of Iban Batuta, although there is not much extensive information in comparison to our local heroes, uh, there are a lot of interesting points about Princess Urduha that struck me. Like, for example, how she actually got furious when Iban Batuta didn't come to them at the banquet when, when she invited him. Simply because yes, he thought yes. that they were infidels. <laughs> yeah, because then, they could not eat their food. Yes. And then, it's also mm-hmm. interesting to note na, um, Ivan Batuta mentioned how many languages Princess Urduha spoke. I think there's Turkish, Arabic, Malay. And I think some articles even pointed out that she knew Chinese and other indigenous languages of the Philippines. So, you can really mm. say that she's well-educated. Or, and perhaps, you know, she had a lot of diplomatic ties with several uh, nations so that she would be that well-versed. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, and then she was also interested in India, the pepper country. And so... Yeah, she wanted to take over India. Exactly. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I'm not sure if it's the spices because we were taught in Hekasi yeah. or like social studies that it's the yeah, other yeah. way around. <laughs> yeah, she, but, she said something like, well, according to Ibn Batuta, Ibn Batuta she said something like, um, I am very interested in the land and the people and I must conquer it. And, yeah, um, so and she's then, really that ambitious and fierce. Yeah, and then <laughs> and then he just and then he just replied, Okay, do it. Like, yeah, okay. and just do it. <laughs> and <laughs> Go do it. Then, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting also how like every battle is I feel like her every battle is like a trophy that she must win at all costs. And then, yeah, and then she's somewhat representative of our hunt. I mean, in that aspect, she's like a representative of our hunter-gatherer culture in the Philippines before the Spaniards came. And then the very notable thing was she wanted a husband braver, stronger, and wiser than herself. So for me, she's really like the representative of hashtag girl power through and through. She, she, um, She would only marry a man who could defeat her and so, and nobody did or nobody dared. So, yeah. So, yeah, in conclusion, I guess, no, all these things, I think the representation of Princess Urduha by Iban Batute is far more, in a sense, colorful or mm. more interesting of a personality than how she is perceived or remembered in the local setting of the typical ordinary resident of Pangasinan. Right. Um, so I I have to admit, like when I was uh, laying out the episodes, mm-hmm. um, I thought like I, I have to um, do something on the Philippines, right? So I thought, who do I know from the early uh, age of commerce in Southeast Asia? It's Filipino, and I thought Princess Duha, that's mm-hmm. easy. And so I started reading, and then I found out that my entire childhood was sort of a lie. Um, in what sense? <laughs> because, um, as I found out while I was researching for the podcast, many scholars believe that Ibn Batuta actually plagiarized Marco Polo and other um, writers. Yeah. And that, yeah, many people believe that uh, she never actually existed. Yeah. I guess, no, I, I kind of remember also, I'm not sure if it was Rizal, but I think there's one like um 
Filipino historian, I think, who sort of disputed it also. So, yeah, that's one thing. <laughs> that was Rizal. Rizal said yeah, she was uh, Rizal, yeah. Okay. I, 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 good right, thing yeah. I didn't mix it <laughs> mix it up with yeah. someone. So, so Rizal said she's from Pangasinan and then um, other scholars said no and then um, other scholars, notably Pangasinan, says that she, she was real and then when you go to the historical records, there's just there's just no match, and it's very like um, it it honestly felt like you know how when you find out Santa Claus isn't real. That's how I felt like <laughs> true. The princess Urduha wasn't real. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what I am so, now. <laughs> so so that I was actually scared to do an episode on her because it's like. Okay, I might get into <laughs> I, I might see. get into fights yeah. about this. Yeah. So, but that's okay. We just um we're here to discover things. So, mm-hmm. um, healthy discussion. It's fine as long as it's healthy discussion. Yeah. <laughs> healthy, healthy discussion. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? Was the um was she real? And if she was real, was she in the Philippines? Ah, uh, I personally, I personally think she is both. Ah. Uh, mm. Both meaning she could really be a historical character that existed in 14th century Philippines. Uh, of course, with much dispute by a lot of people. But of course, as it is with most writing, whether literary or bibliographical, I kind of believe that every story will be biased. <laughs> Based mm-hmm. and biased, depending on the writer's perception. <laughs> so um, sometimes what may be factual to one could be an exaggeration to another. So that's, I mean, that's what I believe. And mm-hmm. then, as a 14th century figure, and we're talking about languages and geographical terminologies that are so different now from from way before. Um, so I think it takes so much research and resources to really prove whether factual or not. So my stand is Princess Urduha could be both. Um, she's really a historical figure, but it could be that some of mm. the narratives that tell of her and um, that we could find today are already fusions of cultural accounts and narratives or may not or may even have something to do with the real Princess Urduha. So I think that's my that's my stand. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way. Like there there must have been a person um, there must have been a basis yeah. for this, but it just got lost over time and over translations. And um, but I think ultimately it doesn't really matter, like whether she was real or not. There's a oh. there's a legacy. Your short film is part of that legacy. Um, so why why do you think in general she remains interesting to Filipinos? Well, uh, hmm. I guess as a nation that somehow gives their women almost equal opportunities, freedom, and respect that is due to men, uh, Princess Urduha will always be somewhat like a symbol for us on how women play a significant role in our society. And in pre-colonial Philippines where datus, rahas are the most respectable positions, uh, I think it's far more interesting to hear a woman who can actually lead and do stuff and be in the middle of the battle, which is like a role that's normally reserved for men. So apart Mm -hmm. from that, I guess it's interesting to imagine also how fine, um, grand, or extravagant her fashion sense would be during her time. 
like how educated she is. I mean, my gosh, how many languages she knew, <laughs> how she's well versed in war, battle, and all these things. And I think she's just an epitome of a true Filipina. So that's why her legacy holds truth or like her legacy still like holds until today. And also one interesting observation. Well, at least in Pangasinan, there are a lot of instances when I saw women drive motorcycles and tricycles in the province. And I'm not so mm. sure if that's what you call like manifestation of Orduha's legacy as a symbol of how women are viewed and revered in society. But I'd like to think that it can mostly be attributed to having Orduha as a symbol or heroic figure that's they can call proudly Pangasinan. I, I think that it would have an impact because they would grow up with hearing about this warrior princess yeah. from and even and he lived here. Yeah, even there, I think there's this one building, it's, it's a, not building, like it's a sort of house and I, I've been through there when I did my um, research. Uh, it's a house reserved for, I, I think, the governor. And they really named it Urduha House or like Urduha Residence or something. And they also named like a film festival after her. So she's really quite, uh, you know, her her legacy is really there. <laughs> she's there. She's, ta- she, she's tangible. <laughs> she brings people together. It feels like um, when you look at um, how many streets or schools are named after yeah. her and there's a festival and everything. I know there's she, she a restaurant. Yeah, there's a restaurant named after her. I think even a hospital. <laughs> yes, yes, there is also a hospital. <laughs> so, um, I guess the question of whether she was real or not, I again, it, I, I guess it doesn't really matter anymore because um, she's, she's always real to someone. Yeah, and... exactly. It doesn't have to be super collective of a society whether they believe in her like 100%. As long as somehow like a few really trust and like made an impact. I mean, her name made an impact to them. I think that's enough mm-hmm. already. I mean, that's enough that you can say that she has a legacy already. <laughs> and taking off from that, do you think there's... um? Not just about Princess Urduha, but about other maybe pre-colonial uh, heroes and heroines. Is there? Uh, what do you think we should be doing to um, introduce them to a new generation of kids who might not be hearing about them anymore? This is like one of the questions that I think I have a lot to say. <laughs> so pardon me if it's gonna be lengthy. <laughs> Because, yeah, I, I think this is a question that I resonate most by far. But yes, I personally think that we should strive to tell stories about, yeah, like this, our culture, our people, our historical figures, and even the mythical ones to the Filipino reader or audience. And for me, as a filmmaker, as a creative person, this is like the biggest challenge actually of our time. Because with the dominance of K-dramas globally, <laughs> what I find so amazing is their ability to u- to make use of something fictional, even something historical, and something innately yes, cultural. I mean, Joseon Dynasty, but they can make it so relevant today. <laughs> yes. 
Um, I remember when uh, you know that drama, the only one I know about, um, Jewel in the Palace. Oh yes, that's like a big and hit during that time. <laughs> because I I personally don't watch K dramas, but my mother does, and when um and then she would start talking about Korean history and like, yeah. What is- <laughs> This but you amazing. get yourself into it. You get yourself involved into it. And what's yeah, so interesting is that how they do it. Yeah, but they wrap all these things, historical figures, or like even something cultural, in a very interesting narrative that transcends the understanding of audiences across mm-hmm. different cultures because they make it so relatable using mm-hmm. universal themes like of struggle, of sorrow. A revenge, triumph, and I think all these things you have a powerful material and story to tell, and um, it it is a bit uh because personally I even I didn't know much about Princess Ordua and I'm already studying history so yeah. <laughs> you know I feel like we we need to be doing something yeah um, I guess this this podcast is part of trying to mainstream yes that sort of thing. Again. Because even though the I think the the what do you call this the attempt of others is of course to do it in writing. Actually, at one point in my life, I sort of believe that we should be writing all these. I'm not sure if if like writing or like um doing accounts of what happened in their day is like something of of this generation. But I find it necessary because if we didn't have like something like this well at least we're digitizing it through podcast but if we don't mm-hmm. have like all these bits of information like how this day will exist in the future that generation so yeah <laughs> and um it's interesting how social media has um democratized history because for the longest time history was really just about people in power and mm. if you did not belong to a particular class you did not get written about so um Yeah, I, I guess there's like a lot of um, things we need to ask ourselves yeah. as filmmakers, as historians, as writers about what we need to do for a current generation to be um, aware, aware and interested about all of these things. Um, I kind of just noted this for the for the for the question, and it's something that I I kind of wanted to tell in this podcast. I remember mm-hmm. this one advice I got from my supervisor during my first few years in the industry, and he saw my short film back then, and I couldn't remember what he said verbatim, but the gist of the message was, when you make a story by weaving the current reality into folklore or something cultural. It's a far more powerful piece than an ordinary narrative. So, I think from this point, it's I sort of want to encourage the listeners of this podcast that whether you're an artist, a writer, a filmmaker, or maybe just a humble creative person, I kind of strongly en- encourage you to look beyond the trends. Uh, folklore and culture does not necessarily equate to boring. It's the universal state of being human with the myriad of emotions that come in package with being a human. That, well, that, that is the key element in making a beautiful piece of art. So if you kind of give due respect also with all these cultural like stories we have, like um, representations and figures we have, then if you can make something so beautiful about it, then I guess... 
it's the pride of the nation also that's in your shoulders. Well, I mean, that's my piece. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to episode 10, Princesa Orduha of Tawalisi. Producing a podcast like this takes a lot of time and research. If you like what we do and want to support the next episodes, head on over to our Patreon. Thank you to Laura, Yati, Kara, and Mando for being there throughout this whole thing. So give us little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, access to the Close Friends Instagram stories, a shout-out at the end of next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. And if you can't join us on Patreon, just tell your friends about this podcast. That works too. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStoryCAPod. You've heard of the terms colonization or decolonization in bits and pieces. But do you find European colonization too broad and too complicated to get into? Well, there is now a podcast for you. Join me, Fidelity, on an introduction through the history of colonization. We will cover not just the major wars and conquests that took place, but also the perspectives of people who have been neglected in the grand Eurocentric narrative of discovery in colonial lens. You can find the History of Colonization podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast from.